We'll pick up our study, chapter 22. Knowing the living God, we're going to consider this evening the, uh, the response that should be ours to God's truthfulness. We've seen that God is uh, authentic, genuine. He is the true God or the real living God as opposed to idols. We've seen that God is truthful in that all that He says and does is truth and truthful as opposed to being an error. And so now we're going to answer the question, if, if all of this is true, then how should we live? Or uh, at least in, in maybe a, a limited sense with regard to His Word, how should we live in light of that? And He says there in the opening introduction, Our God is the God of truth, and all of His ways, works, and words are within the realm of truth. In the following scriptures, we will consider how we as Christians should live in light of this truth. There are four headings, four things that He gives us that ought to be our response. Study it, pray to understand it, obey it, and then share it. As I've said many times, and I'll, I'll continue to say this, but there are truths that we confess that if we believe them truly, then they will produce action. There's always a response uh, very often you might hear people will confess a truth. There's no fruit that comes from it. There's no, no response, no action that is produced. Well, you can conclude they don't really believe it. They may say it. But as Christians, there, there is a response. So we'll begin with studying it. We should study the word of truth. Now, I, I want to read to you a, a definition of study. To study is a detailed investigation and analysis of a subject or situation. To study is to devote time and attention to acquiring knowledge on a subject. Now think about that. A detailed investigation and analysis to devote time and attention to acquiring Knowledge. Don't answer out loud, but if that's the definition of study, how many of us can say, I study the Word of God? There are many types of what we might call interactions that we can have with the Word of God, and, and the men actually discussed this yesterday morning. There is that, that reading of the Word of God where we are seeking, um, in a sense, just to consume large quantities. Maybe you have a reading plan that somebody else has produced or you've decided on your own, but you're trying to read through all of Scripture, let's say in a year or, or every year or two, or maybe you're, you're maybe trying to get twice a year or something to that effect. But you've got a reading plan, and the goal in that type of reading is not always to study in it with a detailed investigation or analysis of everything you're reading. But there should be that type of reading. A second type of interaction that we need to be having with the Word of God is, is what we're talking about here, the study of it. Uh, studying, uh, learning, we'll see in a minute, meditation, uh, uh, digging into some of the details. Now that might mean that you pick a particular text and you say, I'm going to go to Bible Hub or I'm going to use some sort of study uh, tools and I'm going to look up the meaning of words and I'm going to read some commentaries. I'm going to try to get a deeper grasp on this uh, verse or chapter. Maybe you pick a particular subject, 
of, of systematic theology. You want to study on the Holy Spirit. You want to study about the atonement or the, the, the person and work of Christ or something to that effect. And so you dig deeper into a particular subject. That is in addition to regular reading. What we're saying here is not only should you read it regularly, but there should also be a study of some sort, an acquiring of, of knowledge, a further uh, investigation. Now the first text that he gives us is 2 Timothy 2.15. So let's turn there. Second Timothy 2.15. The Apostle Paul gives an important admonition to his young disciple Timothy regarding his relationship with the Scriptures. And we're going to look at this admonition and it would be easy to say, well, well I understand that I should be reading, but, but the study aspect isn't that more so for, for preachers and people who are, who are uh, in a particular field where they're going to have to teach it. Um, and we would respond, well, no, that's not just for preachers and and teachers, all of us should be students of the Scriptures. Well, then we turn to a pastoral epistle, and you could say, well, that's just Paul talking to, to Timothy. And that is true, but there's always an implication that we draw for all of ourselves in, in, uh, in, a, in an admonition like this. So he says to Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I think that most of us would probably say there have been times where we have handled the Word of God or maybe we a time of reading, a particular day of devotional time. You read, you close it, you walk out of your, your bedroom or you walk out of the house and if you met God right there, boom, you're before God, you might be a little ashamed at, at how you just treated His Word. Paul tells Timothy, you don't want to handle it like that because there is going to come a time when you're going to have to give an account. You're going to have to answer. So he's, he's encouraging him by reminding him that you're going to be held accountable to God for the manner in which you handle the Scripture. Not necessarily how much knowledge you got or, or acquired. Not, not necessarily how many um, particular subjects you got under your belt. But did you give yourself to a diligent study of it, evidencing that whether you attain to a very high level of, of knowledge or not, you, you gave yourself to it showing that you knew that it was the Word of God. Timothy was going to be accountable to God. And he, we see here the proper handling of Scripture requires diligence and hard work. The word there, be diligent or, or study, is spudadzo, which means to labor with intensity. Or to be eager and zealous. For all Christians, we must understand that God is honored when we work hard in our handling of the Bible. This is evidence that we truly desire to know and understand God. Not just information. We want to know Him. It would be better. This is one of the things that I learned from Spurgeon when he talked about pastors that didn't have many books. He said, you don't have many books? Then take the few that you got and devour them. You will be a master in whatever you've got. There are lots of people who have a broad surface level knowledge of many things, but they never became a master of anything. So maybe in your life you, you only have the, 
the tools and the competence to devote yourself to, to, to mastering one subject or one book or even a chapter. But what if you got to the end of your life and you said, I've spent my life studying the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes or John 17. And you could say, there's a lot that I didn't know, but I, I, I dealt with this and I handled it well. Well, that's, that would require a, a, uh, a diligent study. And that proves that we want to know God in whatever capacity that we can, not just information. Now, how often is it that when seeking to learn about a theological subject or a practical issue of godliness, you've got a question, how often do we find ourselves running to Google, type in the subject, and then we're just skimming through blogs and articles so that really the... the the diligence of our study is actually exerted in trying to figure out who is um, a, a, a reputable teacher, who can be trusted, right? And this is very often what we do. You know, maybe you'll text or call somebody that you know is, uh, is knowledgeable in the Scriptures or even an elder, and you say, listen, i got a question I need you to help me with. Okay, I'm here. Go for it. What is it? You know anything about R.C. Sproul? Is he pretty solid or... Well, yeah, he's good. Okay, that's all I wanted to know. That's fine, but we need to do our work in the Scriptures ourselves. The diligence is to be spent in the Scriptures, not just trying to figure out, okay, good teacher, bad teacher, good teacher, bad teacher, list of good teachers, okay, everything they say is correct. Maybe not. That might not be the case just because they're solid in many areas. That's why we have to be students of the Scriptures ourselves. I'm not saying don't call me and ask me that. I would answer the phone and I would love to have that conversation, but very often that's how we think. It's usually because we want the answer more than we want God, or many times we've gotten ourselves into a pickle where a decision has to be made very quickly, and we don't have the time to do the study. We just, I, You just got to give me something, give me an answer. Or it might be that you don't know how. When I say study the scriptures, well, you're thinking, what does that look like? Like, I don't, I don't know how to do that. Well, ask somebody. Come to me. I will, I will, I'll teach you whatever I know. I can help you or point you in a direction to say this is how I go about it. But th th those are tools that you acquire over time to learn to study the Scriptures. But we have to be students. We have to study the Scriptures. Turn to Psalm 1. Here we have a, a response to the truth of God's Word, but there's also a promise embedded in, in this psalm for those who will do this. Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So what do we see here? Well, the, it, the response would be that we ought to be meditating consistently on the Scriptures. So this takes us even further. Not just studying and get to get information, but meditating on the Scriptures. And that requires that we know what the 
particular passage or text means. Okay, meditating is not thinking over and over in your mind, what does it mean, 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 oh, I think I can get this. That's not meditating. Meditation comes after nailing down the meaning of the text. You've got a truth. You've got an objective doctrine or an application. Then, you, the men read yesterday, you, you, you set your mind a-steeping. In that truth. So you imagine a tea bag. You've got your boiling water. You, you drop your bag of tea down in there. And at first, nothing. You look, there's nothing. But over time, the water gets darker and darker and darker. And maybe you, you bob the bag up and down and it's, it's permeating more and more and more. That's the picture. Your mind has been dropped down into this truth. And at first, maybe nothing. You're just trying to settle down in the truth. But eventually, over time, you're permeating, you're bobbing, 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 and eventually your mind becomes saturated with a broad understanding of the truth. Meditation. And what's the promise? Those who will study and meditate, he says, will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Firmly established, constantly nourished in your soul by the Word of God. Rooted, firm, not easily pushed over like a tree by the water. So that happens. So we ought to be students studying, but also meditating on the Scriptures. Now turn to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7, and we looked at this back at the beginning of this study. Ezra himself being setting a pattern for us. Ezra 7 verse 10, we're asking how, how did Ezra respond to the reality that he had truth? Verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So this is Ezra's pattern, study it. Practice it. Teach it. Now, we're not all scribes. We're, we're, we're not all formal or official teachers of the Word. But in, in some capacity, we ought to all be trying to follow this practice and pattern of Ezra the scribe and follow his order. Begin by setting your heart to the task. I'm going to give my heart to this and then study, practice, Teach. I think that's a good pattern to follow. Study it, practice it, put it into practice, live it out, and then teach it. Now, I want to qualify that with this. That doesn't mean that you can't teach something from Scripture without a successful experience in the practice of it. Or we might say in, in, without a mastery of it. In other words, following this order, study, practice, teach, that doesn't mean that I can't tell you what the truth is if I have not first mastered it myself. As believers, this is just our general way of life, it, we, we set our heart to all of these things as a whole. Our, our whole heart is turned to study and practice and teach or communicate what we're studying and what we're seeking to practice. But the reality is, our practice 
will never perfectly conform to what we've studied and what we've seen in God's Word. So if the requirement is that, well, until you've mastered it, you can't talk to me about it, well, then nobody can teach anything. So that's not, not what we're saying here. We all fail and we all sin in many ways. But what does this do? This idea, this, this truth, actually serves to prove the value of the truthfulness of God's Word. Because we study and practice and teach God's Word, not my experience or not the fact that I have mastered it. So I don't come to you and say, hey, listen, hey, whoa, I've mastered this. Let me teach you. No, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to hand you this. This is what we have. Teach the Word. Ezra, the scribe, did not set his heart to study and practice and then try to address all of the ins and outs of each individual's experience and background in Israel so that he could have the qualifications necessary to speak to them. No, he studied God's law. And in having God's law, he had all that he needed to be a faithful scribe. This, this, this type of thinking, is, uh, I've mentioned it before, is, is closely related to what has been called standpoint epistemology. It has no place in a Christian worldview. Standpoint theory, succinctly, is, is this idea that you have to earn or gain the authority to speak and address certain situations or problems or people by experiencing what they have experienced, by, by standing in their place. You, you, you earn your standpoint to address them. So you've probably seen signs or heard people scream, no uterus, no opinion, in, with regard to the abortion issue. Well, if you're not a woman, if you've never been pregnant, You've never gone through this. Well, you can't, you can't talk about abortion. You have no idea. What? I can't address murder because I'm not a female? That doesn't make any sense. That's standpoint epistemology. You have to earn your right to speak to my situation by walking in my shoes. And anytime we hear or say or even begin to think that someone cannot adequately address a matter because they have not experienced it themselves... They can't address us because they've not lived in my shoes. And I won't address them because I've not lived in their shoes. Anytime we think that way, we, our thinking is more in line with second wave feminism than it is Christianity. Because Christians believe we have the ultimate, objective, unchangeable standard of truth in the Word of God. I don't have to experience anything. Just like with my children, I don't have to do drugs to then say, Hey, listen kids, trust me, drugs are bad. No, I can say it objectively. Don't do that. Right? We, that's, that we believe that because we go to the Word of God. And anybody, whether they're a scribe or a pastor or whatever, anybody who takes the Word of God and opens the Word of God and explains the Word of God and applies the Word of God, they are communicating the final, objective, absolute authority. They don't need experience. But what does this require? Again, it requires study. You're going to have to know the Scriptures. You're going to have to think through the Scriptures. You're going to have to think uh, maybe a little more broadly than just your own uh, personal interaction or experience in your life. Very often our, our handling the Scriptures is uh, we read it, and then when I have an issue, I go to find out the answer. And then I read it, and when I have an issue, then I go to seek, seek that out. Well, if that's the way I deal with the Scriptures, only ever bringing my issues 
well, when it comes to another issue, I'm not going to know what the Scriptures say. Well, you want to study, and study matters broadly, more, more than just running back and forth to the Scriptures with, with problems. So, so anyway, the, the first point is we need to study the Scriptures. If we believe that it's truth, then we ought to study it. Secondly, we should pray to understand God's truth. Turn to Psalm 24. Pray to understand God's truth. Psalm 25, I'm sorry. Those of you who have your workbooks, you know where to go. Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day. What does David want? David wants God to teach him his ways, God's ways, God's paths. David wants to know God's mind. David wants to know God, and David wants to know what God wants for David. This is what it means to be a man after God's heart. God, I want to know you. I want to know what you desire, what you love, what you hate, and I want you to change me to be like that. I want your ways. And he prays this. So how do we follow his example? We follow his example. We do what he did. We pray. Prayers like this. Make this a specific aspect of your regular prayers, especially as you're engaging with the Scriptures. So if, you, if you're, you're getting out of bed, you're going to the Scriptures, then you want to make, pray some sort of a prayer like this. Make me to know your ways. Teach me your paths. Ask the Lord to teach. And notice that David was willing to wait. For you I wait all the day. That doesn't mean he did nothing. That doesn't mean he just laid his Bible on his lap and closed his eyes and said, I'm just going to wait until you explain it to me. No, David, would, we, we are assuming with whatever scriptures he had, is studying and he's praying and he just continues that pattern until God makes the matter clear. Now, again, in our, in our society, we're sort of a rush society. We don't really want to wait. We want the answer now. You might pray about... Lord, help me to understand. And you might read, the Lord might not reveal it until, you know, tomorrow. Oh, what if? I had to wait till tomorrow to know the answer. I, I get up and I don't know the answer. Well, Lord, I'll be right back here. Or I'll meditate upon the truth all the day and maybe it'll come to me as I go about my day. But he prayed. He understood. Apart from God, we, we can't even understand the truth that we do have and apply it. But we have to pray, ask, and then wait upon the Lord. Turn to Psalm 43. Psalm 43 is a prayer of deliverance. Yet in the midst of this prayer is a wonderful petition regarding God's truth. And that's found in Psalm 43, 3. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. So that's the petition. David is asking God for illumination and for truth. When you see light, the idea is revelation, illumination, understanding. He's asking for that. And you, when you, you continue to read, you can see David clearly desires to be back in Jerusalem. 
He wants to go back to Mount Zion. He wants to be back in that place where God had made His name to dwell in the midst of His people. Lead me back there. Now, for us, we understand there are many things that can draw us away from from near and close communion and fellowship with God, especially our own sin. And so in those moments, when we, we, we feel like we've been drawn away or we have been drawn away, we have to understand that apart from God, we can't get ourselves back. So we pray, God, you need to come with the truth and give me your light, give me your truth, bring me back. We rely solely upon Him to bring us back, to show us the way, to bring to light that which is unseen. And so what do we do? We pray. We pray. If we believe that there's truth, but it's divine truth, we have to pray that God would help us to understand it. Turn to Psalm 8611. Another prayer of David, Psalm 86, 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. David says, teach me your way. Now he's, he's, he's not just asking for information. He's expecting the Spirit of God to come and teach something and, and make it effectual. Well, how do we know that? Because he says, I will walk in your truth. He's, David is certain that if God will come and teach, that he will be changed. He will walk in what is taught. It, it conforms. You can teach me something and I can say, yeah, I'll take it or leave it. Maybe, maybe, it, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Maybe I, maybe I adopt it, maybe I agree, maybe I don't. But when God comes and teaches, you teach me, I walk. We respond and he knew that. When God teaches, it produces obedience and conformity. And then he asks, unite my heart to fear your name. Now, this is a huge statement. But here's the picture that that came to my mind as I was thinking about this, and especially in relation to to Psalm 1. You can imagine that the heart is like a tree, and it's got roots that, that it uses to draw nutrients, water and things from the soil. And David is praying something like this. Lord, I can feel that the roots of my heart, rather than going toward the streams of your word, are are going outward away from the word. Into many other things, a a, a waste and wilderness that the world provides, the world presents to us. So Lord, draw back the roots away from all of that, back to the fountain, so that all of them come back to you and to your word by the power of your spirit. Bring my heart back to a singular, undivided focus on you and your name and your word so that you are once again the all-consuming reality for me. Unite my heart. That's, that's draw it all, all these other places that my heart is going. God, yank it down and funnel it back into you and your word and who you are. Unite my heart. And we should pray this way. We should recognize and confess often that we, when we know that our hearts are not united, they're not one. You say, God, my, my heart, I'm trying to come to your word. I'm trying to study. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to meditate. My heart's going in four different directions. Now, we, we don't say, no, God, just wait right there. I'll get this straightened out. And we go off by ourselves. 
get our, get our own heart right, and then we come back. No, right where we sit. God, I need you to unite my heart. You draw me in. That's a prayer that we can pray to God. So we study. We pray to understand the truth. Then thirdly, we should obey the truth. Obey the truth. Revelation 12, 17. In that passage, the saints, you don't have to turn there, but the saints are there referred to as, quote, those who keep the commandments of God. Now, Revelation is apocalyptic literature, right? Lots of symbols. Lots of things that we're, we're trying to figure out. What is this actually representing? Well, when we read those who keep the commandments of God, I'm, I'm, not, trying to, I'm not asking anybody to draw me a chart on what that means. We're talking about the people of God. Because we know the people of God are those who keep the commandments of God. If we believe that God has given us truth and we should obey the commands expressly set down or necessarily contained in that word of truth. And that's a phrase from our confession of faith. Expressly set down. Just plain words right there. It says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Expressly set down. Or necessarily contained. Maybe you take this text, this text, and this text and you put them all together and you say, based on this, the Bible teaches or commands this and I must do it. It's contained there, maybe not expressly set down in so many words. We should obey the truth. So turn to, to 2 John, verse 4. Second John 4. I'll read these two texts in the, together. John says, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. So there we see he's glad that they're walking in the truth. The walk is the way of life, conducting yourself according to the truth. Okay, then we come over to uh, 3 John verses 3 and 4. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in the truth. And listen to what John says. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Few things, in my estimation, are more, uh, more, more pastorally succinct and then this statement, this is, this, is, this is John the pastor. He's saying, this is, this is what I want. No greater joy than that you're walking, you're conducting your life according to the truth. You're obeying the truth. That's what John says. I'll point out, I didn't read this note, but he says the word walk comes from the Greek word peripateo, which means to walk around. It is a word that is commonly used by the Apostle John to describe one's style of life or daily conduct. To walk in the truth is to order our daily lives according to God's truth, especially as it is revealed in the Scriptures. And so we see from both of these texts that it pleased the Apostle not merely that some were reading, not merely that some were meditating, not even that some were praying about the truth. That's all good but they, they had actually gone on to obey it, to, con, to conduct themselves according to the word of truth. There, these other things, you say you're reading the, reading the truth. Hey, that's great. Meditating on the truth, that's great. 
I've been praying about this or that. Hey, that, that may or may not be great. Are, are you doing it? There, there are times, I've said this before, there are times when people tell me they're praying about something and I, I'm, 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 I want to say, could you please write down the words of that prayer? I want to hear it because I don't know how to pray the, th- the type of things that you're praying about. I don't know what that looks like. I don't understand that. Okay, so you might be praying about some things when, when the Bible, really all you need to do is just do what it says. Just walk according to it. So, so while I'm praying about it, you know, that, that could encourage a pastor's heart. Okay, maybe. That's good. But if you're walking according to the truth, I, I don't care how many books you got. I don't care what subjects you've mastered. If you're walking according to the truth, it's made application. The Spirit's working. He's producing. That's why John said that. So we have to obey it. Turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. The reference that's given is verses 7 and 8, but I want to back up to um, verse, let's say, 5, so we can get get a, a full sentence. He says, because, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. And it's going to explain that. To those who... By perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. That's the reward. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, wrath and indignation. God's going to reward each according to their deeds. We have the deeds divided, those who persevere in doing good. Those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth. And then we have the rewards. Eternal life or wrath and indignation. Now he asks, according to this passage, how important is it not only to know God's truth but also to obey it? If we're not obeying the truth, what are we obeying? Well, what do we see here? I'm going to try to word this properly and I'll qualify it as a... I want to do. What we see in these verses is that eternal life hinges on the concept of obedience. Now I would say, you're asking how important is it? I would say that's pretty important. When we're talking about eternity, that's pretty important. And if we're not obeying the truth, we are obeying unrighteousness. The only reward we can expect would be Wrath and indignation. Now, let me qualify. He's not saying that salvation or justification is is completely a matter of law-keeping, that the determination is made by whether you obey or disobey, that that's what brings you into a right standing with God. He's pointing out what the rest of Scripture teaches, that true salvation will manifest itself in obedience, in law-keeping, as we, we talked about with gospel obedience so I guess we could say on the day of judgment, we don't have to imagine that there would be some who were justified by faith, but they were disobedience, and so they, they get wrath and indignation. There were some who never exercised faith and were never justified, but they were really moral people, and well, what do you know? They have eternal life. No, 
it always goes together, justification and sanctification. But um, at any at any case, we have these texts, I think, which should press the point. These are matters of eternity. And we should think of it that seriously. Now in verse 8, he says, The unrighteous are described both negatively by what they do not do and positively, that is, by what they do. So then we have a fill in the blank. Negatively, the unrighteous do not obey the truth. Positively, the unrighteous do obey unrighteousness. Again, we've addressed before our tendency to ignore all language concerning salvation and obedience in light of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And we will go to an extreme where it sounds almost like there's no expectation of holiness in the life of a Christian. Or that we cannot make an honest evaluation of a person based on the general tenor of their lives. That's not true. Somebody confesses the faith. They say that they are a Christian. They profess their faith. And you look at your li- their life and you see the fruit. It is okay to say, that's a Christian. Now, you might be wrong, but it's not because you were wrong. It's because you were deceived. You were tricked by whatever they were producing in, at that period of time. But it's, it, we don't have to think, well, well I, just, I just can't make a, any determination at all. There's just really no way to know. That's not true. We are told to look for fruit. Justification by faith alone, apart from works, we hold that. Sanctification and holiness as the inevitable fruit of that person, we hold that as well. They always go together. There must be obedience. Turn now to Psalm 51, verse 6. Psalm 51, 6. We know this is David's prayer of repentance. Psalm 51, 6. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. I'll read the note. God desires that your external obedience to the truth be the result of inward truth and sincere, heartfelt loyalty to God. No other kind of obedience is acceptable. Inward truth, the inward attitude of the heart. And then John 4. Verses 23 and 24. Christ speaking to the, the woman at the well says, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. We see truth there referenced both times as well as spirit. Now he gives this explanation. The reference to worshiping God in spirit has two possible implications. First, we must worship God sincerely and profoundly. So that would be If we take the spirit to be a lowercase s, worship in our own spirit with the inner man. Secondly, it could mean or imply, or maybe both, we must worship God in the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit, which we would take that spirit to be a capital S, in in the spirit. Now, 
as I've said before, as a Christian, these two would not be separated. If we worship with our spirit, it will be in and by and through the power of the Holy Spirit influencing that. But either way, we have that reference to the inner workings of a man, not just external things. He says the reference to worshiping God in truth also has two possible implications. One, we must worship God truthfully, sincerely, and with integrity. And two, we must worship God according to the truth. That is, according to the will of God revealed in the Scriptures. So there is a conformity to what God has revealed. But there's also the expectation of the inner obedience of the heart. In both of these passages, we see that obeying the truth begins with the heart. We could go back to Ezra. What was his first step? He set his heart to it. It was a fixed principle of his inner man. I'm giving myself, my spirit, my inner man to this. Since God is a God of truth and has given us the word of truth, then we must obey the truth. So we study it, we pray to understand it, we obey it, and then fourthly, we should share God's truth with others. Again, this is the same with Ezra the scribe. He studied, he practiced, he taught. We study we obey, and then we should seek to communicate. He says, The truth is not just for us personally, nor should our obedience be our only concern. If we truly love other believers and the world around us, we must share God's truth with them that they also might live in conformity to God's will. So let's turn to Psalm 40, verses 9 and 10. Psalm 40, verses 9 and 10. David says, I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. So, obviously, we should be Uh, open and outspoken about the truth, but here especially amongst the saints. Two times in these verses he references the great congregation. He's in in a group of believers and he's communicating the truth. You and I miss great opportunities to share, communicate, or just discuss the truth of God's Word when we don't do it among the saints especially on the Sabbath day. An important part of our negative Sabbath keeping, that is, on the Sabbath, there are some things that we don't do. An important part of that, as we take a holy rest, and our confession puts it this way, that we take a holy rest from our own works, words, and thoughts. Now, if I'm resting from my works, my words, and my thoughts, well, that means that I need to be striving to bring my thoughts to a state of worship and also the words that come out of my mouth, especially on the Sabbath. I need to try to make them worshipful, God-focused, God-centered speech. We might say we, we should seek to worship God in conversation, in the great congregation. Now, I don't know anybody that doesn't struggle to communicate truth uh, to outsiders. 
I don't personally know anybody that says, man, I have never struggled with that at all. Unbeliever, lost person, stranger, I just walk up and explain the gospel. Clearly, no problems. It just, it just, I've never heard anybody say that. Um, and, and very often, our, our fumbling and stumbling in those scenarios might be because we've not taken the opportunity to practice in a place where it's always going to be received well. There's, there's no pushback here. If you want to you want to share the gospel with me, I'm going to be like, go for it, man. Let's hear it. I want to hear it. Let's practice. You, you, you become accustomed to it. In the world, it's, it's not going to have a very, uh, a very well reception. But here it does. So take that opportunity to practice around Christians. And, and you might develop that, that uh, a little bit of confidence to do it around unbelievers. But we ought to be communicating God's truth. And don't ever... Take it for granted. Don't, don't come around me and say, well, I'm not going to talk about that because he already knows. No, I want to hear it. I want to hear it. So do that. In the congregation, communicate the truth. Ephesians 4, verse 15. Let's look there. Ephesians 4.15, this is, now we're going to address the attitude in which we share the truth. Uh, let's, let me, I'm going to go back to verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. So we are to speak with this attitude, love. Speaking the truth in love. We, we could go to 1 Corinthians 13. We could say all of those things need to characterize our heart and mind as we bring the truth to others. We need to seek the good of other people. Not just a, a, a victory in a conversation or, or conquering on a topic or subject, but I love you. I want to give the truth with to you in love. And one commentary, I thought this was helpful, describes this phrase, speaking the truth in love. He says, this means much more than, than just speaking the truth in love. It signifies thinking, feeling, and acting under the influence of the truth which works by love. So he connected truth and love. Sometimes we kind of... Well, we... we we don't know how to define or explain love as, a, as a, a, a demeanor from which we present the truth. And in our culture, especially, I'd say, especially amongst the Reformed community, you, would, you could bring that text, speak the truth in love, and they would say, that doesn't have anything to do with how I say it. Well, okay. Let's look at the next text. 2 Timothy 2.25. It's important that we understand that it, it doesn't work to, to share the truth and speak the truth and not if we do not take regard for how we are uh, being uh, perceived by those we're speaking with. I'm not saying conform everything we say to the culture or, or try to please everybody or hold back the truth. But the, the other extreme would be to say, I'm going to go in with my brow furrowed and angry and war paint on, and I'm just going to start yelling. And when they don't receive me well, I'm going to say, well, they just hate God and hate the gospel. 
No, they hate you. <laughs> so there, there is a demeanor, 2 Timothy 2.25. Go back to verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And he gives this explanation. The word gentleness comes from the Greek word prautes, which also denotes meekness, mildness, forbearance. It is the very opposite of harshness and severity. And so our speaking of the truth, whether to believers or to unbelievers, should come across to them, should come from an attitude, and should come across to them as the very opposite of harshness and severity. That's how we should speak the truth. In love, hoping the best, desiring the best, wanting the best, and with meekness, gentleness, the opposite of severity. So, since we have the truth given to us by the God of truth, and we are as believers indwelt by the Spirit of truth, then we should be people who study the truth, pray to understand the truth, obey the truth, and share the truth. Now what happens when we do this? If we're all doing this, the church becomes a pillar and buttress of the truth. It's held up and it goes forward in this generation and in the next generation. And unbelievers even and outsiders may come in and they'll be able to say, God is in this place. The truth is being made known in this place. So let's aspire to that. Let's pray.